0: This episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast is brought to you by Gusto. Modern, easy payroll benefits for small businesses across the country. And because you're a listener, you get three months free when you run your first payroll. Find out at gusto.com slash tape. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jance, and my guest today is Bruce Daisley. We're going to talk about his new book, Eat, Sleep, and Sleep. Work, repeat. Thirty hacks for bringing joy to your job. So, Bruce, uh, thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having
0: me. So, I'm sure you're familiar with the eat, sleep, work, repeat meme on Reddit.
1: <laughs> I'm not. In fact, I ch- I ch- get out of here. I chose the title based on a musical record. But go on. Ah, I was just going to say. Then you're
0: then if you weren't familiar with that, then uh, you're probably not uh, familiar with the song by the Ghost Years. I guess is. That-
1: no, so mine was based on. Uh, there was a a track by the EDM artist Fatboy um, Slim that Calvin Harris, the other EDM artist, uh, remixed, and it's it's an interesting one. It's sort of got a long winding lyric that's like a story, and it's about a gentleman who finds himself constantly out at the club, and uh, and and the song is called Eat Sleep Rave Repeat, and so. That was going through my head on a, a one-long commute, and I changed it to Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat for my podcast and then subsequently my book. Well, there's, a, there's actually a song
0: by that name, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, by a, a band, um, a little-known band, I'm guessing, <laughs> called The Ghost Years. So now you'll have to look all this stuff up. I've given
1: you lots of homework. I mean, am I going to be looking at a lawsuit here? Uh, like the ghost, the ghost Years are hitting me with a writ. <laughs> I, I should, I suppose it depends if they're still together. <laughs> what a way to start my day. <laughs> Suddenly I find myself in litigation. Oh. Thank you so much, John.
0: So uh, eat, sleep, work, repeat was not all you've ever done in your life. You, uh, This is, in fact, uh, I know it's been a few years for you, but this is actually a, a bit of a departure from your previous career, isn't it?
1: Yeah, that's right. I've just, this second, I've just, um, a couple of weeks ago left, I was a vice president at Twitter for eight years. And then prior to that, I worked at uh, Google, at YouTube for um, another five years. So, yeah, so um, I was sort of a senior exec at technology firms before turning my hand to this.
0: Yeah. So, um, and I may have this wrong, but this book is, depending upon when people are listening to this, coming out uh, towards the end of February in 2020. Uh, but, but this is actually a retitle of this book, right? Uh, it was originally called of work,
1: yeah, it was the joy of work in the u k um and I've zinged it up with uh far fewer parochial english stories and i've I've added um some exciting u s uh stories because it did quite well in the u k It's sort of like I see it as like a cookbook for anyone who wants to improve their workplace culture, so say if you're sitting there and you're thinking you know there's just something not quite right in my team. And it might be that you're the boss, or that you're might might be someone far more junior. But you you just want to get things right. And what I discovered when I was had that same curiosity, I discovered that there was there was books and books of and academic papers of research done into how we can improve work, and yet strangely none of it reaches any of us in jobs. So it became my focus: what could any of us do to use the the science and the research available? to improve our jobs um so that's it it's a it's a t- it's a cookbook to improve the 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 dynamic in our teams so I hear a lot of people
0: uh, blaming technology. You worked for a couple of those technology companies that to, to actually that's adding to some of the stress and disruption and whatnot. Do you think that that's really the case or is
1: that just an excuse? I mean, have things really gotten worse? Well, the, the unavailable, uh, the unavoidable truth is that irrespective of whether technology is to blame. And I think the answer, by the way, is partly. But um uh, Irrespective of whether technology is to blame, the technology we now have is the technology we we need to deal with. It's uh, a little bit like, you know, we've just joined election season and people say, oh, well, I preferred it in this era when this happened. I preferred it in this era when this happened. Suddenly, we don't pick and choose the era we live through. And so, you know, the the technology and the way that people are using the technology around us is just now something that we need to deal with. We we can't romantically imagine a a more simple era because, you know, it's simultaneous with us transplanting ourselves back to 19th century Britain. (laughs) And uh, and imagine ourselves working in, in sort of these archaic environments that we might see in a film. Yeah, simultaneously, there were a lot of other problems. So, you know, the, the place we're in, definitely technology contributes to the way that a lot of us feel overwhelmed by our jobs, no doubt.
0: Yeah, we don't have to build our homes and kill our food, do we?
1: Exactly that. And, you know, we've got antibiotics, we've got penicillin, we've got all manner of things. So, you know, let's count some of our blessings at the very least. Um. A lot of
0: organizations, especially in Silicon Valley, it seems. Um, I, one of my kids uh, actually works uh, out in Silicon Valley, and you know, she is one of these. Her, her job title is kind of one of these, like head of hugging or something like that. I'm just teasing her, but you know, it's just a lot of these companies, you know, are are uh, you know getting these these people that are in charge of the culture, for example. Um, and I, I think there's actually an air of a, of personal accountability to your book that sort of says. And and I think you actually blatantly say culture is kind of a myth. You want to?
1: Yeah, well, certainly I believe company culture is a myth. I believe that, you know, the idea that you can get a consistent feeling between the Chicago office, the the Denver office, the New York office, and for it to be precisely the same mandated on PowerPoint slides. Um, sadly, we, I mean, it would be wonderful if that were the case, but it's it's simply not the case. So um so company culture is something of a myth team culture is far more realistic and and you know th- the truth of that is that people can find themselves working in adjacent teams in the same office and have a very different experience at work you might occasionally chat to someone in the uh in the lunch hall or you know um on the the way home and you'll you'll say to someone how's it going and and their experience can be completely different to yours so i think um, generally when we discover that these good working environments, they generally exist at a team level. That's not to say that companies can't aspire to these things, but they you need to be realistic in terms of what they can control.
0: Yeah, because most most employees, especially at larger organizations, I mean, their experience of the company is their boss or their, you know, team leader or whatever. I mean, so that's that's probably who's dictating more about the culture than you know, anyone else in the organization to that person.
1: Very much very much so. The fundamental thing people say when you ask when you try and identify if people have a good job, the fundamental thing that determines whether people think they have a good job is whether they have a good manager. And so, you know, managers have a huge bearing. Now, you might work for a company that's giving you um free perks and benefits. It might be providing you with a free smoothie on on one wednesday a month but but you know if you've got a wretched manager then generally you think you've got a bad job yeah 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 for sure
0: um you pick on another uh, one that i think is uh, falling out of favor but uh, there was a period of time when everybody was building these 200 people in one room <laughs> all sitting across each other uh from a table and and now we're all going to be able to communicate better and most people i know that work in those environments spend a great deal of their time trying to find some Peace and quiet. Uh, You you take on the open plan office as kind of one of the maybe worse than uh, than social media as far as a distraction.
1: Well, more than anything else, I think a lot of us recognize the experience of thinking that we went to we go to work early to get something done, or we feel like we can never get anything done because we're beset with all these never-ending interruptions and meetings and emails. And um, the Open Plan Office, the day I discovered, you know, sort of a veteran worker, but the, the day I discovered that the science of Open Plan Offices was so atrocious, it just was this revelation to me. So let me share with you, John, the, the secrets of Open Plan Offices. Number one, uh, the, the biggest change that happens when organizations move to an Open Plan Office is that the uh, the the ratio of people who hate their colleagues goes up by 75%. So, if you've ever found yourself driven to distraction by the woman who sits behind you or the, the guy who sits next to you, then you'll know that actually that's a, a regular occurrence with open plan offices. Um, and, you know, the strange thing about open plan offices is normally when we're sold into them, people paint these beautiful pictures of accidental conversations and creativity and people sort of spontaneously coming up with new ideas. And in fact, what you discover is the Uh, The next biggest thing that changes is the volume of email goes up by two thirds. So really strange that that feeling where you're emailing someone who sits three desks away from you simply because we we have so many more interruptions in those environments than we ever did in in smaller offices. Yeah, it's it's almost like uh, taking
0: employees and making them roommates at the same time,
1: you know, because they're
0: on top all
1: day long no look I, i'm pretty sure that we'll never escape open plan offices but the organizations who seem to be making the best go of it are the ones that seem to be saying okay we're going to allow you to have maybe you've got a, a laptop we're going to allow you to have uh, quiet spaces where you can go and work in fact if you chat to people who work in co-working spaces um the people who run co-working spaces say that people spend more time in their social in the the anonymous social sort of coffee bar style um, spaces than they do at their allocated workstation, and it's a good reminder we, we actually when we're, we're not uncomfortable with a bit of noise around us, but we hate it when that noise constantly interrupts us.
0: Yeah, it's it's funny. I um, like you have written. Um, I actually I've written six books, um, and I have written the bulk of them in coffee shops. Um, I actually enjoy the noise, but but to your point, nobody speaks. To me, it's just the noise around me. Um, some people can't do that at all, but uh, uh, but there is a difference. I think everyone loves payday, but loving a payroll provider that's a little weird. Still, small businesses across the country love running payroll with Gusto. Gusto automatically files and pays your taxes. It's super easy to use, and you can add benefits and management tools to help take care of your team and keep your business safe. It's loyal. It's modern. You might fall in love yourself. Hey, and as a listener, you get three months free when you run your first payroll. So try a demo and test it out at gusto.com slash tape. That's gusto.com slash tape. All right. Let's talk about, since your book has the uh, a number in it, 30 hacks for bringing joy to your job. Let's talk about a couple of them. Uh, the very first one is one that I've actually uh, I've done for years. And it's uh,
1: uh, this idea of monk mode. So you want to unpack that one? Yeah, but the idea of monk mode is that strangely we seem to find that. Um, well, firstly, the whole of work is something of an illusion. The idea that maybe we're going to work forty hours a week, that each of those forty hours is as equally productive as each other. We sort of we we imagine that we've got a five by eight grid of you know of of those hours and that each one of them will be equally valuable. And what we discover when we, we actually plunge into measuring what people work and what they achieve is that these, these are not equally uh, as productive. And so what you discover then is that our secret is it, unless we're going to work longer and longer, and that seems to be one of the unfortunate mistakes that a lot of us make, but if we're not going to work longer and longer, working out when the good stuff is, uh, it seems to be – a Pretty vital components. When are the sociable hours? When are the productive hours? And it seems that for most of us, our most productive hours are in the morning. And so one of the one of the hacks that a number of people have, have found real benefit from is almost carving out a time before we open our emails, a time before we turn our podcasts on, maybe t- maybe twice a week, where we um, we carve out. Sometimes it's called, I, I met one guy who called it his most important thing. He called it his MIT and he would write on his board every day, what was his MIT? And he wouldn't do anything else until the, he'd finished the 90 minutes that his MIT had taken him. But this monk mode morning, this idea that like a monk, we have no interruptions and we focus on something um, is one of the the hacks that I've seen to be most effective. And the strange thing about the monk mode morning is that We can accomplish in uninterrupted time far more than we ever realize. So one of the things that, you know, I'll be guilty of is I know that I'm going somewhere in three weeks and I need to write a presentation. But I've known this for a long time and it's sat at the top of my to do list. And yet when I come to actually do it, as long as I don't have 50 other browser tabs open, as long as I I don't have too much other distraction, actually, I really productive hour can make a, a big dent in that. And so that's the idea of monk lo- mode, removing these distractions, removing these punctuations, and actually getting to focus our energies on something seems to be one of the best ways to get more out of our time. Yeah. And
0: I, I suspect we all underestimate how much,
1: um, how much weight that
0: presentation that you had to make was actually causing on The rest of your thinking and the rest of your focus, because you were putting it off, you knew you had to do it. It was causing stress. I think that's probably a really underestimated element of that.
1: Yeah, you know that thing that sort of dogs your to-do list. You know, that sort of you see it sitting there. I promised I'd get back. I promised I'd get back. I promised I'd get back, and it's sort of over time. It's it's becoming more and more of a burden on you, and that's it. To sometimes to say, right, you know, I've seen a couple of people who say I can't carve out ninety minutes. Every day, but I'm going to do 60 minutes twice a week. So it's finding whatever works for you. But what what you often discover is those 60 minutes twice a week can be the most productive gaps on your on your calendar. Yeah,
0: I think if we're all being honest, uh, we, and, and we did like assign a dollar value to you know each hour that we spend every day, that they're probably the. 80% of our money is made in 20% of our work or, you know, the, the old saying.
1: Absolutely. Well, here's the strange thing. How I found myself do, self doing this, I'm not sure if you, you identify with this, but, you know, I was coming home. I used to have a day on Mondays, which was laden with meetings. I had seven hours of meetings on Monday. And, you know, I would come home and my inbox would be creaking because of the, all of the emails. And I'd feel, wow, it's the start of the week and I'm already hours behind. And I used to sit every Monday night at my kitchen table, sometimes with a cup of tea, sometimes with a glass of wine, always with some sort of music playing or TV playing. And I I once took stock of the fact that I'd spent three or four hours sitting at this kitchen table and I took stock of how little I'd actually done. And I thought, after an exhausting day, you've added to your tiredness by sitting at that table for four hours. You should have just switched off, watched some TV, gone to bed early. Instead, you have sat at that kitchen table for four hours. So tomorrow you wake up even more tired. And it's and I think, you know, that's the critical thing. Being more honest about what we're actually doing and what we're sort of giving ourselves the illusion we're doing is an important step on fixing this problem.
0: So one of the hacks that uh, I I wasn't going to cite, but since you mentioned it, um, sleep, better sleep, more of it is 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 a hack, isn't it?
1: That we need to adopt. Yeah, and very much so. And you know, the reason why I feel so strongly about it, I set off. I um, had this. Maybe sort of patriarchal desire to to make the people who were working for me happier, you know whether it 's my responsibility to make them happier or not i don 't know, but I was like they looked so miserable that I was intent on trying to bring some some smiles back to their their little faces and um, and I set about trying to make people happy and, and what I discovered when I was doing extensive reading on happiness was that there are two things that make us happier uh, full stop. Period. Um, there, are, there are two things that make us happier. And so I thought, well, OK, but let, let's at least cover these. The number one thing that makes us happier is to sleep more and sleeping seven and a half to eight hours sleep a night uh, makes us more happy. In fact, you know, if you were to measure this, Prozac um it achieves a, a 1.8 shift on the 51-point depression scale that, uh, that's created. A good night's sleep moves us eight points. So, you know, a good night's sleep is sort of four or five times better than Prozac. Um, but, you know, so, so sleep is is by far the best thing that any of us could do. The second, I'm not sure how helpful this is, but the second way to make yourself happier is to spend time with happier friends. And the more we spend time with happy people, it does appear to have an impact on our own happiness, our own psyche. So, you know, that old mum wisdom that used to be sort of surround yourself with those uh, with positive, happy people. There seems to be some some clear benefit to what your mum told you. So. You've broken up the hacks into kind of personal
0: and team and then leader. Um, What's one of, uh, if, if, and I get, I've written a book recently that has 366 separate pages, thoughts, you know, it's a daily book. And and so I always get the question in my interviews, what's your favorite one? And I'm like, I'm going to pick one of those as my favorite page. But you only have 30. So I'm going to ask you, do
1: you have a favorite? yeah very much so so here's what i set about doing i set about thinking how can i make work better how can i make these these um miserable souls i'm surrounded with feel look like they're less burdened i wanted them whistling on their way to work and so what i discovered very quickly is that there are a lot of things that companies do wrong um and some of the things that companies do wrong intentionally and some of the things that that companies do wrong unintentionally but i i found myself re- reflecting on all of the management, all of the advice I'd ever got. And there was one image that was indelibly in my head. And it was the, um, it was the sanction. It was the, it was the uh, scolding of a former boss who'd said to me once, um, now's not the time to be seen laughing. And, uh, and we were in a particularly um unfortunate time you know things were tough at work and he said please do, please don't be seen laughing when uh, the big boss walked past and so it stuck in my head and as I was there thinking right this is the time to research um you know what's the rights and wrongs of work I thought well, I must investigate this one and truthfully I was thinking I was just going to lay out the science of why he was right and you know, and then get back to the the other things that we could do. And what I discovered was that the science of laughter is far more well. It's far more emphatic in what it advises, and it points very resolutely in the opposite direction to what he said. So he said, "Now is not the time to be seen laughing," which I guess suggests in bad times we don't want to be frivolous, we don't want to be distracted, we maybe don't want to be unfocused. But if we look at people who have prevailed in difficult times. Um, very often, it's humour that characterises their behaviour. You know, in, if we wanted to go back to Churchillian maxims, then you know, church, sort of um, keep calm and carry on, and the whole Blitz spirit that you know my, my countrymen had was very much anchored on sort of a an irreverent humour. But we also see it through army uh, deployments they they often will characterize servicemen will characterize their time as you know being filled with laughter firefighters often describe the laughter that fills some of their their really intense moments and so laughter seems to have this incredible capacity to reset our resilience for sort of helping to us to feel more um more able to deal with stark problems that we're faced with so anyway i i found myself really charmed with the science of laughter
0: yeah and that uh, ends up uh, as a hack in i probably won't be able to find it oh, it's just called laugh okay <laughs> there you go awesome awesome so, Bruce, uh, tell us where we can find Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat and more about uh, you. I know you have a podcast by the same name as well.
1: Exactly that. So I've got a podcast you'll find. It's eatsleepworkrepeat.com. If you go to that podcast, these um, I've tried to inf- interview some of the leading psychologists, neuroscientists who've done work in this field. So, you know, any of us who maybe find ourselves trying to build the culture in our, you know, in our, Kids' soccer team, or in in our own workplaces, or maybe we've got our own company and we we want it to be the place that we always dreamed of working. I've that was my mission. How could I make this into? Thirty very simple interventions that are proven to work.
0: Well, Bruce, uh, thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll have uh, links to the book and links to uh, Bruce's podcast and website in the the show notes. So uh, hopefully, uh, I'll run into you. Uh, I assume you're going to spend some time in the states promoting the book. I
1: saw you. I am. I am. Yeah. I mean, I'm in New York in the last week of February, and uh, I'm in SF, and then um, Austin in early March and then back in the summer. So yeah, absolutely. All my events on the website.
0: Well, thanks for stopping by. Hopefully we'll run into you uh,
1: out there on the road, Bruce. Thank you so much for having me.